Hey everybody, this is Tyler Unsel. And this is Orrin Gray. Welcome to the Horror Podcast. Every two weeks, Orrin and I get together to discuss how our featured horror movie might be used in the classroom. And tonight, we explore the Fulci Argento collab slash Terminator sequel. That is the 1997 Wax Mask. But before we get there, Oren, man, what's going on? What uh, what have you been up to the last couple weeks? Um, so like watching and reading wise, I have not accomplished much that is, um, or watching wise, I have not accomplished much that's like noteworthy. Um, a lot, a lot of, uh, sort of under the radar things. I watched like Turning Red, for example, that everyone's been watching, but that's not horror. Um, yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> I have not seen it yet, but I've heard great things about it. It's really good. It's really good. It's cute. I mean, it, it is about a person turning into a monster, I guess, kind of like, right. A giant red panda is kind of a monster. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> Dude, our definition of horror is very broad here. And, uh, yeah, I say it counts. So. But I did read, um, just today, actually, I read uh, Orochi, the, the new biz manga release of Orochi by uh, Katsuo Mezu, who you've Ooh. heard me talk about before on here. Yeah. Um, and that literally just came out yesterday. So <laughs> so uh, tell, tell me a little bit about it. Give me kind of the big broad overview or the log so, line or whatever. Yeah, so, so Katsuo Mezu is like the the sort of most famous horror manga creator um, of all time. He's the one who inspired, you know, Shinji Ito and all the others. Um, and Orochi is probably his most famous work, at least of horror stuff. Um, but it's never been released in English in its complete form before. Like they've released parts of it. Um, but supposedly this is going to be its complete form. This is only the first volume, so we'll see. But supposedly they're going to release the whole thing. Nice. Um, it originally ran in like 1969 was when it first came out and it's this kind of anthology thing that's connected by the title character Orochi, this uh, girl who has weird mysterious powers who just wanders from place to place encountering like weird supernatural happenings that oh. are really unrelated to her um, sometimes she precipitates them in some way but usually they're just like weird things that are happening and she happens to stumble on them cool um and uh, the first volume is just two stories, but they're really good. So I love it. I'll have to check it out. Now, did you get it through a press, or did you buy it on Amazon? Or yeah, I, I just bought it online. It's it, it's from Viz uh, Media, there who did um, all the new Shinji Ito stuff that's been coming out, but also they did uh, Katsuo Mezu's Drifting Classroom a few years oh, ago. Oh, you is, talked yeah. about that, yeah. yeah, yeah, which is this gargantuan thing that's amazing. So yeah, it looked. I remember that name now, connecting it to that. Uh, I think either you let me, I don't, somebody maybe lent me it for just like a day and I got to leaf through some of the pages or maybe yeah. you sent me some screen grabs of it, maybe, but it, yeah. it looks oh my so God. good. It's, it's incredible. It's super intense. And like, as far as school horror goes, like there is no, more weird and horrific school horror that has ever been produced maybe <laughs> yeah yeah oh I, I really that is my reminder to dive to dive into yeah. that a little deeper very good very good 
Well, um, the last two weeks have been uh, borderline insane for me. Uh, I, it really kind of all started. Uh, I got to talk to uh, the crowd at South by Southwest. Uh, they do like an education forum at the beginning of the uh, festival. And they, there are so many things that I learned, so many great experiences I had at that conference. But the, the chief one of all of them is that I was surrounded by other educators that believe very strongly in the uh, idea of service and the idea that social justice comes along with that. And uh, it was bonkers. Most of them came to hear me talk about, uh, you know, horror and pedagogy in the classroom. And I, I felt like that lecture went really well. It wasn't really a lecture. It was only about 20 minutes, but uh, it was so much fun. And I have a recording of it and I'm just trying to get with the South by folks to make sure that I can release it. I'm sure I can. Um, what I will tell you is as a speech teacher, I am hypercritical of the fact that I said, right, like a thousand times <laughs> in 20 minutes. So please don't hold any of my vocal fillers against me. Uh, I hope that I'm a little bit better a teacher than I am, a, you know, in, in practice. So uh, and then when I got home, I moved. So right. uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, it is. It is what it is. And uh, n nobody cares. But today they found out I have roots in uh, a pipe that goes to my sewer line. So $5,000 later, uh, they're going to come and fix it so that, you know, we can take showers again. So awesome. yeah, yeah. yeah. Home ownership is a fucking racket. Don't do it. <laughs> Don't do it. So that brings me to the kind of content that I have been uh, super excited about. So number one, I just got done watching all of the different segments of the new Silent Night Blue that was released by RLJE Entertainment. And uh, I saw it initially just streaming. Okay. And I was really lukewarm about it. It was fine. It's got some really great tension building it is vaguely reminiscent maybe of The Invitation, which is one of my favorite movies of all time. Okay. But some of the the tone of it landed a little wonky for me. Like, it feels like it wants to be really funny from time to time. And uh, that part was less successful. I think it was just straight up fucking horror. Then I would be down for it, or straight up thriller or suspense or whatever. Mm -hmm. it, it's just I think maybe they did too much. Now I will tell you, some of the bonus features uh, have some additional scenes, have some additional commentaries that I think provides a little bit more context for the choices that they made. Mm -hmm. And I liked the film more having listened to all of that and watched all of that. Has has that ever happened to you? Like you? Oh yeah. You see this kind of additional shit, and you're like, "Oh, okay." It did, definitely didn't land without all of that additional shit right. along with it, you know. Yeah, and I mean, and 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 like sometimes that happens, and a lot of the time, like I'll see a movie once and be like lukewarm about it or whatever, and then see it again or two or three times later and love it. Yeah. Um, and so sometimes it just takes time for things to land. Like you have to be in the right space to yeah. receive them. I don't know. Um, but yeah, definitely, um, like learning more about movies almost always helps me appreciate them more. Yeah, yeah. And I and I think we're kind of in that golden age, and, and we'll talk way more about that, I'm sure, in just a moment, where you get all of these additional features if you buy the, the hard copies of things. 
things. Right. And that within itself, for somebody that enjoys the kind of uh, intellectual discussions that can center around this stuff, like I, I, I almost always want and need that in the content that I'm consuming because sometimes it's just fun, but more often than not, I really want to dive deeper. And that stuff really is the, I don't know, yeah. it's the point of entry. So. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I honestly like legit do not remember Silent Night coming out at all. I had to look it up just now. Yeah. Um, I, I didn't see it, um, but I, I, it is completely unfamiliar to me as though it was beamed from another dimension. I've never heard of this movie. <laughs> so the marketing around it, when, when it had its original streaming release, uh, was not ideal. It was like one of those films that uh, I really only started to see when it came to blue, when it, started to have these these kind of oh very specific releases as opposed to a big grander uh distribution so yeah i don't know if that is speaking to the the distribution rights of it or just how fucking weird our world is now yeah, i mean it was it was you know it was 2021 like i missed a lot of shit that happened in 2021 <laughs> right right but i strongly recommend checking out the film it's got a great price point with rlg they have a wonderful track record of, of picking good stuff, right? And and then making sure that, uh, you know, a broader audience get, gets access to it. The thing I'm really excited about, though, is this movie, or movie, this book uh, by Terry Mills called Rabbits. And uh, the closest comparison I can give you, did you ever see... Oh, Ready Player One, or read the book, or know anything about it? No, I mean, I know, I know, I know more than enough about it. <laughs> so, think the general premise of Ready Player One: that okay. there is this broad game that lots of people play, but in that game, there are like spooky shit, like people die, uh, ghosts from other dimensions maybe uh, bad guys that can span parallel universes. There are absolute fantastic moments in the book. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't particularly love the ending because it is is like, oh, and we're done. <laughs> and all that, <laughs> like all of the really cool shit we built throughout the book, none of that really matters because, you know, not, not to spoil the end of the book, but the, there is almost a... It, it, maybe the opposite of Deus Ex Machina, you know, where it's like, oh shit, there's there's really no, there's no higher being or anything else. It's all just a different thing, right? <laughs> but I really enjoyed getting through the book. It's got kind of some great pop culture references. It is a less bro-y version of Ready Player One. And that within itself would have sold me. Um, but more people need to check it out. I think it is Terry Mills' first book, Okay. Uh, and it is absolutely, or I think it's Terry Miles, not Mills, but nonetheless, book is, is tremendous. Check it out. Forgive the last 20 pages or so, I think. Uh, but, but Terry Miles has a big, long future, uh, ahead of them and I can't wait to check it out. So nice. it's going to be awesome. So now it's time. Now it's time to move on to our essential question, which 
over the span of this last week, I think I changed four or, time, four, four or five times. I even changed it right before we went on the episode because I was like, well, the, originally I was like, what can this movie teach us about anatomy? And, and I, 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 like, I like went in and in parentheses was like, hopefully nothing. <laughs> like, I hope, I hope we're not learning anatomy from the Wax Museum Terminator movie. Yeah, yeah, and that, and that is what this movie is. Coupled with maybe Frankenstein, like it's got a real heavy kind of Frankenstein's monster vibe about it that we'll get to. Uh, I'm sure stuff going on. Yes, yes, it does. <laughs> but here is our essential question tonight that we will attempt to avoid at all possible, uh, you know, possible ways, and That's it my is. Plan. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> it's most that's usually our plan but uh so tonight's essential question is how does the wax mask unravel the relationship between art artist and subject i'm not sure that it was a good idea to work in the museum what kind of lunatic could be responsible for this? in earnest and i i get kind of uh into the nitty-gritty and why you picked this the internet movie database provides a spoiler free this time summary and it goes as follows in 1900 paris a couple are horribly murdered by a masked man whose metal claw rips out their hearts the sole survivor and witness to the massacre is a young girl 12 years later in rome a new wax museum opens its main attraction are lifelike recreations of gruesome murder scenes. A young man bets that he can spend the whole night in the museum, but the next morning, he's found dead. Soon, people start disappearing from the streets of Rome, and the Wax Museum halls begin filling with new figures. Okay. Once again, that is a weirdly detailed synopsis. Like, there's yeah. a lot of information in there that I don't feel like you need in the synopsis. <laughs> Yeah, like uh, like the very detailed um, description of the first 10 minutes of this film. Right, yeah, it's very odd. Because that whole bet and what happens to the young man at the beginning of the movie barely matters. Yeah, you know? it's, basically, like, it's basically the cold open, even though it's not because the murder, the like 12 years ago murder is the cold open. But, and it does matter, sort of. Kind of, yeah, yeah. Well, and to, to the extent that anything matters, because this movie's plot is a mess. Yeah, well, and I was hoping maybe you could help me with that when we get to it, because I think there are still some things that I don't fully get. There's at mark. least there's at least one very glaring question that I don't think anyone knows the answer to. Possibly not even the people who made this movie. Okay, tell me what your question is. Let me. Let me. Well, the let me... big glaring question is why the fuck were there two Terminators? Which we're jumping way ahead of 
we're putting the cart a mile in front of the horse there. But yeah, yeah. where did that other Terminator come from? Yeah, no one knows. Yeah, so I watched <laughs> that and I like I squinted eight ways to Tuesday and I'm like, is it the same one? And I no, it clearly is not. Yeah, they, like the creepy Dario Argento looking assistant guy um was also a Terminator, apparently. Um, which makes no sense and comes out of completely nowhere for no reason. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and just to give the movie a stinger, near as I can right. tell. And, and like I couldn't I couldn't figure out at the end of all of that how we were supposed to feel about that second Terminator, right? Like are, are we sympathetic? Are we cuz like there's this like wink and nod he gives to the camera, you know? Like right. in the last couple of minutes and I'm like Ooh, I was kind of down for him being like a, a robot that found uh, his conscious, uh, you know, like whatever. Uh, but that wink and nod sure felt maniacal. Did not feel great. Yeah, and like, depending on who was who at a given moment, like the the Doctor Terminator, like the guy who runs the wax museum, the, the villain of the piece, is not really redeemable in any meaningful way once you learn his backstory. Like, he's actually just a bad person. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. Like, there's no, there's, there's no fig leaf that can hide how uh, bad he is. There's no right. alternate motive. There's no. The dude just likes to like first I mean, off. And he was a he was a bad person before he fell in the in the vat and turned into a monster. Like he was, he was abusive and weird in his relationship with her to start with. Yeah. Like, and, which and, is what got him thrown into the vat. Like. I mean, and clearly um, has an unhealthy relationship with women in general, right? right. Like uh, yeah. it is, this is a, I, I think it's fair. You, you know a lot more about Jallo stuff than I do, but I think this is a fair to classify this as at least containing a lot of the qualities of Jallo. Right. Right? It's certainly adjacent to them, if not, I mean, okay. you know, if nothing else, it's Italian. It involves murders. Dario Argento and Lucio Fulci were involved. Like that's enough to at least put it in the same neighborhood. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it also reminded me very much of that 70s and 80s Italian, like, softcore porn kind of patina, right? Like, it reminded me of all those Emmanuel movies and all those things that were made there. Some of that is the bad dub version that I watched, because there yeah. is a there's a, um, a Tubi copy of this that is not great but does the job and uh it i think contributes more to that kind of sleazy italian cinema that i don't know if it's intentionally going for but well and like i mean one of the things about most italian horror cinema from you know from this era from the the 70s through the 2000s at least and i don't really know on either side of that very well it doesn't make a ton of sense, right? Like none of it. Like plot, plot is never its strong suit. Like there are ones that are tightly plotted; they do exist, but that's not the norm. Like the right. norm is these very kind of loose, almost dreamy, weird plots where atmosphere is prized way more heavily than motive. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and this is no exception in that regard. Like this is this is a movie that is all all vibe and very little plot. Um, oh, I like it. All vibe. I need more <laughs> movies that are all vibe. Um, 
And I mean, and you know, part of that probably, I mean, you know, I, I have not actually studied this, but I mean, part of it probably comes down to the fact that a lot of these movies, I don't know about this one, were not filmed in any one language, right? They were, they were filmed by all of the actors who were from a spray of different countries, all speaking in whatever their native language was and then yeah. dubbed for distribution to every market. And that's going to, no matter how tight your screenplay is, that's probably going to lead to a somewhat disjointed product. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I, I think that that mismatch of actors and of languages, and I think probably contributes some to that dreamlike quality that you were going for, right? Like it, it's- I mean, I think so. Yeah. yeah, it's it's lack of coherence is part of the shtick, you know, right. as opposed to uh, what do they say? It's a, a feature, not a bug, right? Right. So, and in this case, I mean, it has um, an additional um, impediment, I suppose, in that it was like it was a first time directing job by Sir Joseph. Uh, I can't I remember his last name. Um, a big, anyway, a big visual uh, effects guy. Yeah, Sergio Stivaletti, who, yeah, was a visual effects guy, but he'd never directed before this. Um, but also, like, it was a movie that had been originally in Lucio Fulci's lap, um, and Fulci's health did not allow him to make it, so the last minute it got dropped in, in Stivaletti's lap and rewritten heavily. So, like, it went through drafts when Fulci had it, then went through additional drafts and Stivaletti had it and then immediately went in front of the camera. And so, you know, I mean, that's, that's never an, an ideal scenario for perfect coherence. Coherence. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, that's so true. So, yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot of reasons why this movie is a damn mess. I love it, but it is a mess. It is an absolute mess. Yeah. Well, uh, in many ways, certainly the Italian uh, cinema angle of this movie, but it reminded me, in various parts, especially in hearing you describe uh, the development of it and all of the kind of wonkiness that happened towards the end of its development, reminded me of a book that is roughly based off of, um, oh, come on, uh, found footage film from the 60s and 70s. It's like the original one, The Kill a Turtle. I'm blanking on uh, it. Cannibal Holocaust. Yeah, Cannibal Holocaust called We Eat Our Own which um, is kind of like a found footage novel. But mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it's, it's absolutely an incredible book by uh, Kia Wilson that if, if you like Italian cinema and you want something like that, this is, this is the right place for you. Nice. But I, I see what you have done. You have quietly created this theme over the span of the last few months, right? Where we have visited a number of films either about wax museums or about, you know, maybe toy makers or these things that are vaguely lifelike that uh, really dig deep into the idea of the uncanny or the uncanny valley. How do you think this movie fits in with like the pantheon of what I will call wax museum movies, right? Because I think we've covered a ton of them. Yeah. And I liked this one, but I'm curious to kind of know where you where you see it fitting in. I mean, so it's it's 
it's too much of an oddity to be like a classic, even if it were good, which I'm not positive it is. Um, <laughs> like again, I love it, but I'm not. I'm not even like. I'm not even positive that it's a good movie. But, um, <laughs> but like you know, like like House of Wax or or Mysteries of Wax Museum or whatever. Those, those are are legitimate classic films, and this one is too weird for that. Like it, like again, it has two Terminators in it at the end. Like that's not you know. Um, we're not going to get a legit classic out of that, probably. Um, but <laughs> you like, never know. <laughs> it's it's uh, it's a film I love because it's it's really beautiful. Like it's just gorgeous. It's a gorgeous film. Um, it's got this kind of um, patina uh, patina of, of the movies only had when they were like period pieces that were made around the turn of the twenty first century. Yeah. Like um, a, a number of the movies that I'll, I'll recommend later have it, but also like the Wolfman remake with um, Benicio del Toro, right? Uh, Brotherhood of the Wolf, like all these movies. They had this. They they were period pieces, but they were very kind of shiny. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love that look. And this has definitely got that look, even though it's from a few years before. Um, but I think you're you're dead on because you talking about those movies. I can see that, and certainly in this film here. And uh, I'm a sucker for the Ginger Snaps movies. Mm-hmm. And they did the third one in that trilogy right. is exactly that. It's a like turn of the century. Actually, I think it's like 18th century, but it doesn't yeah. matter. It's a period piece, I think, was released around the early 2000s. Yep. And it is. it is. It is bright and shiny and crisp in a way that I don't think you would necessarily associate with. Right, that we don't normally see in period pieces, which are normally, like, aged, even in the way that they're shot. Mm. Um, Perfume, yeah. Story of a Murderer is also one. Like, there's a whole bunch around this time that all had that same look. Yeah. Um, and I love that look. Uh, and so this is that. But, like, interestingly enough, like, as, as much as this is a, a movie with a wax museum that is great looking, by the way, I love this wax museum, um, and a movie about like a wax sculpture, and it's got all the, the pieces. It doesn't actually fit the plot of most of them, oddly enough. Um, it's got someone turning people into, into figures like they normally do, mm-hmm. but his backstory is totally different than the normal like wax museum movie backstory where the, the villain is tragic. Again, this guy's not. He's not tragic. He's no. just a monster. Right. Um, and like he wasn't betrayed and he was, I guess. His wife was sleeping with another man, but he was abusive to her. So like it's not we, we don't feel for him uh-uh. the way we feel for like the, the main character in House of Wax or Mystery of the Wax Museum where they were good people who wanted to do good work. And they were betrayed by someone who was greedy, um, yeah. and it, it it upturns that entirely and and makes it a very different kind of movie. And honestly, it feels like so. <clears throat> this movie claims, and we'll get back to this in a second, that it's derived from a uh, oh uh, Gaston Leroux. Okay. It's not though. That's a lie. But we'll get back to that in a second. What it feels like, even though Poe never wrote anything like this, it feels like Poe stories, right? Like it's got, it's got a lot of the same stuff that went into a lot of, especially the the, the adaptations of Poe stories by people like Fulci and Argento, 
um, where where they became a lot more openly sexual and gory. Yeah, you know, Argento's Argento's um, half of Two Evil Eyes would go perfectly with this. Right. Um, and, I get that. You know, and and uh, it's it's got that almost. I mean, the the opening sequence is basically the murders in the room or right? Like it's these people who've been brutally killed in a locked room. Yeah. Um, you know, it's 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 got this very Poe like ambiance instead of what the Rex Museum movies normally had. I I think that's a a fair evaluation. It it feels like it is it it takes a little bit of every other movie that we've talked about, right? Even the movies that took place afterwards. You're like, oh yeah. Like uh House of Wax, I think, uses some of the imagery perfectly from this movie. Like uh yeah. The, the concentration on the eyes is like the only sign of life, right? Mm-hmm. And where they're initially glowing or gluing the fake eyes onto uh, our prostitute, who is, uh, I think, beautiful and deserves way better because mm-hmm. she is charming and fun and I like her a lot. Yeah, she's and, great. Yeah, and her end was not great, but mm-hmm. we get this real, real legitimate moment of terror where he glues over her eyes. And to make that Poe connection even more, it reminds me of the cask of Monte, of Amontillado, right? Where mm-hmm. it's like, it's only until he's about to brick the guy up, right? It's that last brick before he realizes like, oh, fuck, oh shit, this is not good, you know? And the right. real horror is the last brick. So he can't see out, you know? And oh, I think they capture that very, very well in this film. And, like, I think the laboratory, you know, where we do all our mad fucking wax museum science stuff, right, is, uh, borrows very heavily from Mill of the Stone Woman. I think it's got kind of this old alchemist vibe about mm-hmm. it that I am totally down for. While at the same time, when our hero or heroine is hiding, she steps on a nail and she's got to, like, cover her mouth. Fucking a quiet place uses that exact, you know, metaphor to ratchet or not metaphor, but exact uh, motif to ratchet up tension in the same way. I don't know. I like. I I didn't. The bottom line is, I didn't love this film, but I think it is at the intersection of so many other films that I've really, really enjoyed. I like. It was a ton of fun to watch. You know. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so another, another interesting thing that I, the thing I find interesting about this movie is it, it uses a motif that I really love that I, it doesn't use particularly well, but I really love it still, <laughs> um, which is like, it's this thing where someone is so obsessed and this actually kind of touches on our, our central question. God help me. Yeah, um, buddy. <laughs> uh, this, it's, it's the thing where someone is so obsessed with doing something relatively simple that they do something impossible in order to accomplish it. Okay, um, unpack it. Tell me. Right. Tell me. So, so the the best example of this motif in any movie ever that I've seen is the movie version of The Prestige, which, if you haven't seen The Prestige, I'm going to spoil it for you right now. But in The Prestige, you know the one the the whole premise of The Prestige is there's these two magicians, and one of them is doing this trick, and the other one wants to replicate it, and the first one's doing it the way magicians do tricks. He's doing it with a lie, essentially, right? He's doing it with misdirection. And the second one is so desperate to replicate it, which he can't, because he can't do the same misdirection, it turns out, that he literally clones himself an infinite number of times and kills them all. 
he he performs an actual miracle in order to fake a trick. <laughs> okay. And similarly, right, this guy is attempting to build wax figures, a thing we can actually do. People do this all the time. And in order to do this, he's not merely killing people and dipping them in wax, which is what we normally do in wax museum movies, right? And the normal reason we do this is because the sculptor's hands are destroyed, right? That's the normal reason. No, he's not doing that. He's like literally transforming them into weird alchemy robots. Yeah. With a magic machine that does magic. Yep. So he can populate a wax museum. Like, again, so he can do a thing that normal people can just do. Yeah. And I, I love that. Like, I love the person who is so obsessed with something that they do something miraculous and don't see the miracle of what they did. They only see it as a means to their goal, whatever it was. Ah, I think, I so I thought, I found that whole experiment and, and that's kind of why i changed the essential question because i do want us to have a conversation here because a lot of the other wax museum movies that we have talked about this season art plays a really critical role in all of that right we right. either have artists who can't sculpt anymore because their hands have been destroyed or i uh, like are ostracized from society so they're the very definition of uh uh, you know, the sad kind of uh, lonely artist. But this movie has no real auspices of addressing the art side of this. No. Like, We're he's never a, given get, any like, indication of why he does this. Yes, right. We have no, like, he was clearly obsessed with it before he had his accident. His wife complains about it in the flashback. But, like... He never, he never, he talks about them. He's trying to make them perfect, but that's it. That's the closest we ever get to a motive. Yeah. Well, um, and, I, and I'm not sure if I really even buy that from a continuity perspective, because like he's trying to make them perfect so he can have Jack the Ripper cut their heads off. Right. Cause it's not right. like they're uh, beatified, you know, like right. they're, they're oftentimes part of a really heinous scene afterwards, right. you know? I think, um, but this is, like, this is me writing into the movie. I'm not sure this is actually supported by the text. Um, I think he is trying to make them still. Because Ooh. his wife left him. Ah, I like it. Still like he, and silent. Right. right? He, he lost his wife and daughter. And so he is trying to make people who will just be still and not fight him, not argue with him, not leave him. Um, he is he is trying to control them in the most, you know, direct and heinous way possible, which is to render them lifeless. <laughs> yeah. So uh, this, this, uh, this begs the question, completely kind of off topic of where we're at, and, and I, I want to come back here for a moment, but are we meant to believe that you know, our, our lovely brothel worker who gets the unfortunate side of the, the wax figure treatment. Is she still conscious? Is she still aware? I don't know. Like, I get the impression that she is, which suggests that they all kind of are a little bit. Right, yeah. Um, which, like, there there is, again, there, there are many things in this movie that are delightful 
ideas that are never really explored. <laughs> and one of those is the the sort of hint that because of the weird machine he puts these people through, they may actually be like alive and conscious and just frozen and unable to move and aware of what's happening around them and just kept alive by this horrible machine. Yeah. Which which is um, a totally fucked idea and right? way worth exploring for more than two minutes. Right. It, more than none. Like, they basically, like... Uh, it's it's only implied at best in the movie at all. Like it's definitely not a thing the movie has on its mind in any heavy way. <laughs> yeah, and so House of Wax could have done a similar thing, but they add one tiny little moment that cues all of us in to how heinous it is because you get this close up on the eyes in House of Wax, and you get like a tear that runs mm-hmm. down, like, and you're like oh shit, motherfucker's still alive. And there's this great kind of catharsis or, you know, whatever, you know, scary moment that goes begging, I think, in this movie. It's like, oh. Yeah. And, and, and again, like this movie could have gone so much further with that idea than House of Wax could have. Because in House of Wax, you know, they do this film, he's alive. He's not going to stay alive long, though. Right. Like he's going to go into shock. And even if he doesn't, he's going to starve to death. Mm-hmm. Or whatever, you know, right? He's he's not going to live long. But ostensibly, the people in this movie, theoretically, could be kept alive forever because they seem to be tied to that weird heart inside his machine Yep, that's pumping goo into them, God knows what. Yeah, kind and, of green, blue, whatever right. else food but coloring like, they had, yeah. Yeah, it's because it's not just when they're in the lab. Like, he hooks it up to them when they're in the tableaus, which implies mm-hmm. that, yeah, he could be keeping them alive in the museum, which is a way more horrifying idea than like anything that actually happens in right. the museum. Yeah. Well, and in like when we when we get to see our mad scientist kind of use that mechanism for the first time, it almost has like a, a hydraulic action and feel to it. I'm like, oh shit! All right, I'm down for that. But again, nothing. We get none of that the rest of the time. It's just like, oh yeah. Here's some hokum. Good luck. But I think all of that does get me back to the kind of central premise, which is this movie is very centered on, if we call the mad scientist an artist, right? right. And we call the the mostly women that he is uh, transforming, although I think we do we do know that there are some men involved here too, mm-hmm. but he's, his relationship with women is troubled at, at best. So, like, in the idea, it gets me back to, I think, a New Yorker cartoon that I saw just a few days ago, where, you know, it was a a dog walking a cat, and it was turning to a human eating a hot dog, and it said, do you like Michelle Foucault? No, that's that's the normal New Yorker cartoon, <laughs> where I have no fucking clue what's going on. I'm you know? really like, glad you went that whole way, though. I'm really proud of that. That was good. I, uh, yeah, I created that off the top of my head. And you know what? I'm 100% certain there is a New Yorker cartoon. That I, like I legit bought it all the way through, actually. <laughs> like, I know where you were going guys. with it, but I was I was on board. And that is why you're a great co-host. You're like, oh, this is fucked. But we're, <laughs> I guess this is where we're going. It, it was a simple, it was just a picture. And it was a woman up on a pedestal and she was fully clothed. And it was a painter who was completely nude, painting her fully clothed. And I thought to myself, that relationship, right? The idea that uh, 
art often, at least how it is captured in pop culture, really has this kind of artist as as captor or artist as uh, capturer of a moment, holder of a moment, and the subject tends to be trapped in time, really is that like that is this movie, right? If we assume that they are trapped forever and still fully conscious, like he's the ultimate artist. He's able to create these tableaus or whatever. And that I think is super fucked up, you know? And I mean, if we, you know, if, if we, if we further try to psychoanalyze the guy and suggest that this is, this is tied to his past and then the trauma that turned him into a Terminator, which I love that we still haven't really addressed that at all, which is great. Yeah. Um, which the movie also kind of doesn't, frankly. Um, <laughs> at, at all, right? Yeah. Um, uh, did, but... did, I, did I miss, like, a flashback where, like, he was a genius in machinery <laughs> or robotics or, or no. the movie's just like, oh, yeah, and that happened. Right. Good luck. Yeah, he got pushed into a big fat of wax and it melted him and then he made himself into a Terminator like you do. <laughs> Um, that's what happens when you get pushed into a big bed of flax. Like, yeah, I don't know. No, um, no, you, you, you missed no further explanation for that. Um, okay, good. It's amazing. Like it is, it is, it is one of those things that could only happen in one particular moment in the history of movies. And this is it, which is that your period wax museum movie could end with a dude being a Terminator. Um, but that is a hundred percent what happens in this movie. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, but anyway, so yes, if we leaving that aside, if we psychoanalyze this guy um, and and try and trace us back to his trauma, like you know, again, if if we believe that he is attempting to capture something that he can hold on to and control, then you know, like you know, to him that would be what art was, right? It would be about making things that were not ephemeral. Right, that were permanent. Oh, um, and that that ties in nicely to your idea that he's constantly trying to recapture his daughter and his wife, or you know, right. whatever, like yeah. trying try to possess them for eternity. Yeah. So you know, um, because like like a lot of art, there's a lot of tension in art. I think between the notion of something that's ephemeral and something that can be experienced over and over again or that can be captured and stored forever. Oh. Right? Like we have, you know, we have sculpture and we have paintings and stuff, but we also have like theater and we have in the modern day, we have a lot of artists who experiment with the boundaries between those. We have people like Banksy or whatever, who do like public installations that come down after a while or, or, you know, things that change over time or whatever that are not permanent the way we normally think of like physical art as being. Yeah. Well, and I think I haven't really fully explored this idea, even in my own brain, but the idea that these wax figures, that that wax museums generally tend to capture and focus on these unique moments of history in a tangible, real, like, physical way that a history book never could or even a non-wax museum like if it's a fucking like oh look it's a bunch of arrowheads right like that's really cool and i and and like i would love to go and learn about that but that is fundamentally different than seeing 
uh, a wax figure of um, an indigenous person or, you know, something along those lines that adds a very real human connection to, to that visual medium. And to a huge extent, they were designed, as far as I know, around a sort of idea that they would be accurate, right? That they would, to the extent that it was possible, they would capture history as it happened so that you could go and experience it as though you were there, right? Like you could, you know, you could see it as though you were there. Because like like you said, uh, if you see artifacts from then, it's not going to look like then because they'll have decayed over time, right? Like, yeah. You know, arrowheads were buried in the ground. Now they're all chipped and worn down and so forth. They don't look like they did when they were made, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Ostensibly, wax museums recreate a moment in history as the way it happened then. Oh, yeah. I like that. Well, every time we have one of these discussions, I, I like to give a shout out to something that's really, I think, close to both of us. And that is... The Haunted House on Hill Street Wax Museum in Hannibal, Missouri, which is full of like scary movie monsters and like terrifying tableaus. It's been probably, I don't know, maybe 10 years, 15 years since I've been there. But just as they had in this film, they have a big Jack the Ripper tableau that they oh, have. Oh, yeah, man. Every, every wax museum. Like, what, Jack, what's Jack the, the deal? Why are we so fascinated with it? And I'll include a little link in the show notes here. There have been so many fucking horror movies based off of uh, Jack the Ripper or around Jack the Ripper or in, you know, scary London fog times, you know, like whatever you want to call that. What, like, <laughs> From now on, I'm calling it scary London fog times. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that's my best work right there. I'm, yeah. Very, very um, happy with that. But you know what I mean. Like, why, oh yeah, why, yeah. why that moment? Why that guy? I mean, so that, that threatens to get us off on a whole tangent that could That's be a whole right, yeah, probably, by itself. Yeah, but yeah, sure. but um, so I I wrote um, one of my stories, Ripperology, that was in um, Pain and Monsters. Like, I posited in it that the basically the reason was essentially the reason that Candyman gives in Candyman for like why he works which is that we knew a name but not a person right like we don't know who jack the ripper is and that's what keeps us interested in him the minute we do he's just a person but as long as we don't know who he is then he's a monster he's something magical until we know who he is i mean see also the zodiac right like the zodiac killed like seven people right like why are we so obsessed with the zodiac so many people have killed so many more people, but we know who they are. Yeah. Um, well, you know, it, and I mean, it, Jack the River killed like five. Whoop-de-doo, you know, but we know, we don't know who he is. Like we, we, and there's other reasons too. Like he was, he was at the beginning of the newspaper era. So there was like a whole media boom and all this. There's, there's like practical reasons, but I think that the reason sure. why we still cling to it all this time later is that mystery that makes him something more than a person. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's, that's a pretty good way of putting it together. And when I was thinking about Jack the Ripper in the context of like modern, you know, the, the, the modern world that we live in, certainly the United States, like 
if there was the modern equivalent and it, it felt the same way, and obviously there are still serial killers out there and, you know, the, whatever, 100%, there would be immediately, like, 25 true crime podcasts just about him, you know? Yeah. And it would, it would be about the... Oh, the, 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 the path of tracking him down, the investigation, right? Which, honestly, we know very little about when it comes to Jack the Ripper and that kind of stuff. We, like, vaguely, we know that they looked for him and we know they had leads and all that jazz. But it's really that investigation that I think has captured the pop culture of Zeitgeist that feels like maybe it's missing a little bit. I don't know. Uh, I mean, and... Like, it's, it's, again, it gets into a whole area where, like, police work was very different in, in, True. You know, in, Jack, in, in, in scary London fog times. Um, we, we were just learning how shit like this worked, right? Forensic science was basically brand new. Uh, I don't remember whether fingerprints had been invented yet or not, but if they hadn't, or if they had, they just had. Right. Like, all, all this shit was brand new information. Um, the method, like basically prior to then, and honestly for a long time after then, if they did not catch you literally killing a dude, <laughs> you probably, probably never caught you. Yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. just don't um, tell anybody and you're probably right. safe. Yeah. Like, um, you know, it, it, it was a mess as far as like what we were figuring out at that time. And because of the media angle at the time, like it was one of the first crimes that spawned a bunch of copycat crimes of people ah, trying to claim, right. trying to claim um, that they were Jack the Ripper and all this stuff. Like, yeah, well, so, you know, it was it, a big it, mess. It, and I think you hinted at something, which is uh, we we were just starting to look at some early versions of like forensic science and that kind of stuff, right. and motherfucker that shit had to feel like alchemy to the people involved you know oh, yeah. they were like what is it and in that way i think reflects the pseudoscience of this movie very well right at some point like a genius is going to show up and be like oh yeah we can totally tell who touched this glass last you know let's right. do these things you could be like holy shit that guy's a fucking witch you know or whatever clearly and, that guy is a robot <laughs> two of the two of them actually right clearly uh, that guy is forward. two robots yeah so what i'm hearing to, to kind of wrap this discussion up before we move <laughs> on to the the final bit you think the prestige is not about a guy that cloned himself but is about two robots that were definitely. able to pull off yeah all right yeah yeah, yeah. I, I, christian bell's character was definitely two robots definitely definitely two robots that totally love to look at um girls topless because I, I having spent the last fifteen minutes of this film. By the way, the actresses I think are, are beautiful and, and you know probably deserve better than the exploitative way that they were shot here. But like, there's no reason for them to be topless, right? Like we didn't. I mean, like okay, so movies from the late seventies through right, the right, right. mid nineties all loved toplessness, and ones from Italy loved it. A hundred times yeah. more. Yeah. <laughs> and, and again, in the grand scheme of things, I'm definitely not complaining, but I was like, oh, shit. I kept like, yeah. is there a compelling reason for her to not have a shirt on? No. I don't, other than like, hey, man, it was in your contract. It was gonna I be mean, it's going to be. Like, really unsettling is the sequence with the little girl. 
who doesn't have a shirt yeah. on, who is dead at the time, but it's still troubling. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think especially early on in this film, there's a little... Uh, there, there's there's a little rapey shit that goes on, you know, and it's like, yeah. oh, this is yeah. um, I mean, wrong like, on a lot of different levels. Yeah, well, one one of the Terminators definitely has a, a weird rapey vibe. pedophile vibe too going on. That's not great. Yeah. Um. <laughs> uh, my hope is that was, uh, you know, Doctor uh, Doctor Robot and not good Helper Robot, you know, or whatever. But again. Yeah. Like, based on the ending, I'm not sure how you could ever tell who was who at any given moment, because apparently they could just swap. Yeah. Never mind that their builds are not remotely the same. Right. (laughs) You'd be like, how did that guy grow a foot? Because he is literally a foot taller than the other guy. Yeah. But now we're not going to talk about that. What we should talk about, though, are what films would make an absolute great double feature with this movie. What do you think? Uh, so hilariously, I think that none of us picked a Wax Museum movie, which is amazing. Yeah, I tried um, to stay away from it. I was like, nah, nah. Uh, so I, I picked um, From Hell, actually, which great. is great since we've been talking about uh, Jack the Ripper just now. Yeah. Um, it's got a lot of the same, like, again, that same spooky London Fog Times uh, vibe. Um, that That's going to be a staple from every oh, yeah. episode. Of For, now. From now on. Uh, anytime I could work it in um, and, and it's just a movie that I really love even though it's a mess also in addition <laughs> oh yeah it's totally fair but yes it is a total mess but a great grand mess yeah yeah. Uh, and then I also picked um, a movie called I Madman from 1989 which okay. like no one has ever heard of um, it's the other movie this is not quite true I think he made some others but it's basically the only other movie by the guy who made the gate oh okay um, i don't i don't know this film All right. and it's about a so it's it's weirdly layered so like there's a novel that turns out to be true that this this woman at a, working at a bookstore starts reading this novel and it turns out to be this true account of this kind of mad scientist guy who created like a half jackal child for himself but also has been building himself a new like face by sewing pieces of people's faces together. Fuck yeah! All right. Um, and so yeah, I mean you can you can see like how its vibe would be very similar to this movie's. Yeah. Um, oh man, I'm excited. It's a delight. It also, out. there's lots of like people getting injected with stuff in it. Oh sure. yeah, yeah. There, yeah, just like there in this is. Movie. Right, and sometimes it kills them, and sometimes it doesn't. And you're like, it's right. got a weird comedy. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. But the strangers look gnarly as fuck, though. They're great. Uh, okay, so first off, the gate. Um, it doesn't have any weird f words in it, right? Because last time I visited the gate, I was appalled by. And again, I was a kid in the eighties and nineties, so I remember it. How yeah. horrifically homophobic it is, oh, yeah. you know? It's I, like it, oh, it and, shit. It and uh, Monster Squad both, and like. The only reason they get a pass for me is because I was a kid then, and we all fucking talked like that. Yeah, well, and I've, the kitty, like alas, but yeah. me and every kid I know talked exactly like that. God help us. Well, and and my son's like fifteen now, and you know we talk about language choices all the time, and like that's one of the words that has been you know put in the same category as the n word and the other words that like you just never fucking say. You never yep. say that. You know, 
Yeah. And I'm like, dude, we used to call each other that all the time. And it was, oh, yeah. I, I look back on it and I'm ashamed of it. It's like, what oh, yeah. the fuck, you know? I mean, and like, and it doesn't make it okay at all. No, not at um, all. But like a bunch of us were fucking gay. Yeah. And we still did it. Like, you know, yeah. it, was, it was just, that's how everybody fucking talked. It was terrible. But, you know, yeah. it, was, it was true, alas. And um, we, but no, and there's there's much less of that in uh, I'm Mad Man because part sweet. of it's a period movie and part of it is, um, and part of it, it's not about kids. So people Very don't good. talk in like jivey language as much. Nice. All right. All right. Very good. I'm going to check it out. I'm adding it to my list. All right. So my two. Number one, just for the cloaks and gloves uh, and like really filigreed murder weapons, uh, I chose Malignant because I think the the line between these two is pretty pretty clear. There's a lot of great kind of catacombsy stuff in Malignant that feels like it could be the basement of the Wax Museum that we right. visit. And I mean, the last twenty minutes of Malignant is basically oh, this guy's a Terminator. It turns out like it's the <laughs> right. same level of like absurd. Yep, yeah. yep. We're just gonna commit to this now. Right. <laughs> This is what we could do because it's fucking HBO. Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. So obviously Malignant. And then my second one's a little stranger, but uh, it's Neon Demon. And I love Neon Demon for a variety of reasons. But for me, uh, the kind of the, the string that tied everything together, there is this great almost uh, played for comedy moment where the lead in Neon Demon throws up an eyeball. <laughs> and mm-hmm. these the, the eyes play such a significant role in, oh, announcing where the story is going to go next or announcing what the story is about. Uh, I, I, yeah, not to mention, it's got some great gore in it. I think there right. is a big discussion about art and artists and the the male gaze as it looks at the female subject as art, you know, that the neon demon really covers, not to mention it actually does have a lot of the same color palette and mm-hmm. you know the other things that um, Jello films are known for, but uh, yeah. And like, yeah. I mean, and yeah, like, like I will think uh, notwithstanding, like it has a lot of that same, like almost cartoony level of gore that this has where like yes. the yeah. gore is really amped up. Right. Um, which, which this one, I mean, just, you know, good god like we got like beating hearts getting ripped out of people's chests. oh it's so great like it's it's, you know the the gore is very like over the top gore and i think that's also true in neon demon i think it's doing different stuff with it probably but you know it's still at still a similar level of like absurdity at some point yeah yeah i think that's that's totally fair what do, what do you think? Anything else left to say about uh, the wax mask? Uh, no, again, I, I am amazingly proud of how little time we spent talking about the Terminators in it, which is just, it's delightful. <laughs> yeah. um, it's it's so good. But like, yeah, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's, I think that's fair. Uh, it is a wax museum movie full of robots as opposed to humans. Uh but I love I, I love a little bit of that. So I, I think I am in agreement with you that it is a fun film. It is a film that uh, I will be eager to share with other people. 
I am going to stop well short of calling it a good movie by any oh, stretch. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, uh, before we say good, uh, goodbye uh, for tonight's episode, we need to take some time to talk about when our next gig is going to be and how yes. you can come and see us and get all kinds of swag and have a good time. And watch us fuck this up live. Oh, yes. 100%. So we are going to be at the Stray Cat uh, Theater here before too long uh, on March 29th at the Stray Cat Film Center, free of charge. We are going to lead a screening of 976 Evil, and then we are going to have a live podcast episode afterwards with, uh, I promise, a ton of prizes and the largest game of uh, phone call uh, or telephone that telephone that um, anybody has ever played and, I, and i'm super stoked about hosting it so what uh what do folks need to know about 976 evil if you if you haven't seen it yet uh i finally it, watched it <laughs> it's a I, I will tell you it is it, it had been probably 30 years and uh i'm gonna watch a whole bunch more between now and then too it was way better than i remembered it being i remembered it being yeah. a fucking mess even like at 12 or however old I was. I fucking it is. I, I think, honestly, I think it's a movie that I probably would have liked less when I was 12 than I did now, actually. Okay. Like, um, because I think it's a movie that is making a lot of weird choices instead of just being what a slasher movie was or whatever when I was oh, 12, yeah. like what I was expecting a movie to be when I was 12. Yeah. And so I think I would have probably found it kind of confusing and disappointing at 12, and now I kind of like it. Yeah. Um, but like, it is, it is weird looking. Uh, it's a very weird looking film. It's got weird, weird colors. Just, yes, yeah. Uh, very strange lighting and and color choices going on there. Um, it's uh, it's directed by Freddy Krueger. Yeah, man. Robert England, um, which I think it might be his only directing credit. I'm not sure. Yeah, um, I think I think it may be his only full length for sure. Right. So. Yeah. Um, but uh, and and stars uh, Evil Ed from. Uh, Bright night, so there's that. Yeah, it's it's got a lot going for it. We are going to have an absolute blast talking about it, talking around our essential question, and mostly uh, hanging out with you all. It is free. They are offering up uh, uh, free streaming. You got to sign up for tickets, but uh, they do require proof of vaccination. We are all going to be masked and staying safe. And I am super stoked to get to meet some of you guys that listen or i don't know just fucking see a movie with a bunch of people that uh, also like to, to watch scary movies so before we uh see you in person orin where can they find more of your stuff on the internet i am as always orin gray on twitter facebook instagram letterboxd i think that's about it actually and at orangray.com I love it. Very good. Well, you can find more of my stuff at Ty Unsel on Twitter, where I'm tweeting about the poli- uh, tweeting about politics and horror, and sometimes about the horror surrounding politics. Um, or I'm going to be in the classroom teaching because uh, you know that's how I, I pay the bills. Otherwise, you should check out SignalHorizon.com, where I am still the editor in chief, and we continue to pump out content, especially surrounding South by Southwest. There's a lot of great shit up there right now about some horror movies that are coming very very soon so uh until we see you in person at uh the straight cat class